In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So with the grace of God today, we will uh, do a summary on um, on the incarnation by St. Athanasius. Um, it's fitting for the season that we're in, the, the nativity fast. Um, and so uh, Father asked me to give a summary on this. Uh, and it's, a, it's an quite an undertaking because this is a very deep theological and spiritual book. And to cover it in one time, in 30 minutes, is, is really a tall order. But hopefully, through the grace of God, we will um, all benefit from this. So, so there are three main uh, s parts to the, the book. So the first part is um, he talks about the incarnation of the Word of God, with starting off with the doctrine of creation uh, and two main reasons for the incarnation. The second part is, uh, is a portion where he discusses the death and resurrection of Christ. And the third part is the refutation of uh, uh, contemporary unbelief, both from Jews and Gentiles. Today we will not go, we will not really get into uh, refutation of the Gentiles because for the sake of time, I think it's already gonna be kind of uh, close to be able to finish what we have. But we'll, we'll at least go through um, some of his refutations of the Jews um, and their arguments against uh, Christ being the Messiah. So he starts off with um, the true theory of creation that, that he lays out, and he says God created everything out of nothing um, in, in opposition to other views. So some other views would be like the Gnostic views or the Manichaean views. Um, so the Manichaean view, for example, is the view that God, cr that essentially all creation was essentially developed from nothing spontaneously, um, which is opposed to the Christian view in which we know that God created everything out of nothing. Um, and he also says, as outlined in Genesis, that uh, men were created above all the rest of creation uh, in God's image. And... So part of, part of, he says in the book, part of being made in God's image is having a spirit and having a rational mind to be able to know God. So because we have those faculties to have a spirit and to have a rational mind, we're able to know God. And it's in that state of being able to know God that we're in a state of blessedness and a state of completeness. So after the fall, man lost uh, the image and lost the life of God. So this, this was a dilemma for God. Well, dilemma, quote, air quotes, because he's all-powerful and he doesn't have a dilemma. But for lack of a better term, the divine dilemma was, on one hand, God could not justly prevent the outcome of him, of essentially man reaping the consequences of, of our sin, and for he said, you know, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And so God could not just undo that because he would be untrue. And he would be going against, you know, essentially the rule that he had laid out uh, for us. Um, and that would be less than his, that would be unfitting and less than his perfection. On the other hand, he couldn't leave man to be in a state of corruption. Um, and, uh, and he couldn't just allow us to essentially deteriorate and, uh, and like go into nothingness 
because it because of us being in a state of separation from him we are in a state of corruption and death and we went from bad to worse as we'll see uh saint athanasius he, he says it nicely he says we had gone gradually from bad to worse not stopping at any one kind of evil but continually as with insatiable appetite devising new kinds of sins and saint paul says something very similar in, in, in Romans and other books. So Athanasius says, was he God to demand repentance from men for their transgression? You might say that that was worthy of God, but repentance would not guard the divine consistency, as we said. For if death did not hold dominion over men, God would still remain untrue. So if God uh, essentially went back on his word when he said, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And we ate of the fruit and we did not die. That would be an inconsistency uh, on his part. And that would be contrary to his perfection and his justice. Um, so repentance by itself was, was useless for it because it did not essentially undo the fallen nature or take away the fallen nature or corruption that we had taken on by, by, by being essentially by... Um, by breaking the law that God had given us. So then the next section, he, he talks about um, the reasons for the incarnation. So here are a couple of quotes. He says, but if death was within the body, woven into its very substance and dominating it as though completely one with it, the need was for life to be woven into it instead so that the body by thus and doing with li itself with life might cast corruption off. So one of the problems was that our, we had fallen into death and we were in a state of corruption. And the way to undo that would be for, instead of us being woven t to death, which is a very, very permanent word. When you say woven, death was woven into the body. And so in order for us to be extricated or to be in, in a state of life, that death would have to be essentially overcome by life. In order for the so, in order for us to be alive, we would have life grafted to the body instead of uh, death, which is what the Lord Christ did on did in incarnation. Is that He, being life, was unite He united His divinity and His humanity, so that the life was woven with the body and the corruption of humanity was cast off. He says, uh, only he could restore or recreate who had created. God had to restore in us the grace of his image by the presence of his very image in Christ. So we had lost the divine image in the fall, or it was, it was um, corrupted or tarnished. And so, so in order for us to regain that, the, new, the image the, the original image of the image that God had given us, we needed essentially the one, the original, for that image to be re-imprinted in us, so to speak. And so that's what Christ did in his incarnation. So first, he united life to our dead body. And then secondly, he, he essentially restored in us the image, the image of God. He is the image of the uh, invisible God, as we read in, um, in Colossians. So he re-imparted that, that, that new pure image in us in his incarnation. 
And this quote kind of summarizes those two points. He says, there were thus two things which the Savior did for us by becoming man. He banished death from us, and he made us anew. So we're a new creation. We're recreated. And it's fitting that we were recreated by the one who created us in the first place. He goes on and he says, uh, for this purpose then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God entered our world. In one sense, indeed, he was not far from it before. For in no part of creation had ever been without him. So he says, essentially, that, you know, the word of God, the son of the, the only begotten son of God was always everywhere in all places. But then what does he say, which we know is uh, um, uh, um, presence but then he says while ever abiding in the union with the father so even before the incarnation the logos of god the father the only begotten son of god he was always everywhere in all places but he was also abiding in the union in union with the father but then he says now he entered the world in a new way stooping to our level in his love He elaborates and says, there was a paradox, which we now must examine. The word was not hedged in by his body, for his presence in the body did not prevent his being present everywhere else as well. When he moved his body, he did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. And it's very profound. And we see that he, that St. Athanasius is truly maintaining and defending the unity of Christ, and that he was truly, fully divine, and he's truly, fully man, with this, with this mysterious unity in which the divinity and, and humanity are maintained without mingling. And he says, um, and this is obviously contrary to Arius, who argued that, um, that Jesus was created and that he was not fully God. Are there any questions so far? I know this is really deep. And it's it's kind of tough. I figured. So, so, depending on the church father, they say different things on what the image is. But the components of the image, I can actually tell you. There are at least seven parts of what it compri parts of being made in the image of God. One of the parts is having free will. The other part is what other part is um, being immortal. Like essentially, we have our start and we go on after that part. But Christ, obviously, God goes on before, right? There's no beginning or end for Him. But for us, we're mortal, just like in in a sense like Him, because we have a start. But then we go on. We don't have an end. Our spirit. Our, yeah. But then for him, obviously, there's no beginning or end. So he's immortal this way and this way, and we're immortal this way. Does that make sense with, with regard to time? Let's see what he says. We, we can do that later, go into the other parts. But those are some attributes of God's image. Oh, yeah. Rational soul, free will, goodness, holiness, purity, love, sonship, authority, um, immortality, um, and yeah, essentially that's it.
I think there are one or two more. But the, and that this this is based on the Athanasian, like the Alexandrian fathers. So depending on like if you're talking about like the, the West or um, the Cappadocian fathers, there may be differences. But that those are kind of like the number of like components of being made in God's image. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if that was maybe more confusing, but um, okay. And so it's a really beautiful how he describes that while he moved his body, he did not cease to direct the universe by his mind and might. And he's making it very clear for the people who would really be confused, like, you know, how could he, how could this happen? Like, it, you're, trying to gra you're trying to wrap your mind around how this person that, we, this person that was before them, he, he is fully God, but he's also fully man. And, and how those were maintained, like each, each nature was maintained and one did not, you know, affect the other. Like essentially, like for example, we say, we don't say that, that the divinity like overpowered the humanity in which like he was like a superhuman and then like it wasn't really a true humanity because the, the, the divinity like overpowered the humanity, for example. But we see that there's, that there's both. And that he was fully God and fully man without mingling, without confusion, without, without alteration in a profound unity in which when he moved his body, he did not cease also to able to, to direct the universe by his mind and might. And which will be become very important later when we see her when, when heresies begin to arise like Arianism and Historian, Historianism. Okay. So in section two, he says, uh, he addresses the cross and he says, uh, he says, essentially, Christ had to bear the burden and the punishment and the consequence of our sin, which was, um, which was the curse, essentially to be estranged from God. And, and as we read in scripture, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. This is a very nice contemplation I wanted to include when he, when he discussed uh, the cross. He said, how could he have called us if he had not been crucified? For it is not on the cross, for it is only on the cross that a man dies with his arms outstretched. It was that he might draw his ancient people with the one and the Gentiles with the other and join them together in himself. Okay. So he elaborates more in case there was any confusion um, as far as his uh, being fully divine and fully human. So he says, um, and this is specifically uh, for with regard to him being on the cross and his death. So he says, mortal, uh, so in the argument for him being fully man, he says, mortal and offered to death on behalf of all as it was. It could not but die. So he had taken on our flesh, and because he had taken on our flesh that, that, that was corrupted, it could not but die. Indeed, it was, as it was for that very purpose that the Savior had prepared it for himself. So that was the reason he came. And uh, the argument for him being fully God, he says, but on the, the other hand, the flip side of the coin, it says it could not remain dead because it had become the very temple of life. It therefore died as mortal, but lived again because of life within it. And, and we see that this is in dispute later. You know, like, for example, Nestorius, what did he do? He said... He said, oh, well, you know, this person, you know, the divine came on this person Christ, 
you know, after the birth. So he, so it's not Theotokos, it's, it's uh, Christokos, like St. Mary is not the Christ bearer, but the, the um, is not the, the God bearer, but the Son bearer or the Christ bearer. And the story is also said what? He said that before the, the crucifixion, or, uh, the crucifixion, that the divinity left the humanity and that only the, only the, the, the humanity died on the cross. And here, it's incredible that St. Athanasius addresses this issue, you know, decades before Nestorius really, you know, gets on the scene. Um, yeah. Any questions or comments? Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to go into the third part of the book, which is refutation of the Jews and Gentiles, but we'll not discuss the Gentiles, how he addresses the Gentiles. We'll just discuss the, how he addresses the Jews. So because the Jews uh, address the validity of the Old Testament, depending on the sect, because they have different beliefs depending on the sect. But, but with regard to the whole of what we consider the Old Testament, they c what they consider the, the, the scripture, he, he essentially goes through a number of uh, prophecies to demonstrate that um, Christ is the expected Messiah. So we'll go over three prophecies, and we'll have to go quickly because we're running out of time. Okay, so the first prophecy uh, that we'll discuss is a, a prophecy from Isaiah. He says, Before the babe shall be old enough to call father and mother, he shall take the power of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria from under the eyes of King Assyria. So you look at this and you say, well, how could that, how does that apply to Christ, right? How did Christ take the power of Damascus, spoils of Samaria from under the eyes of King Assyria? So what King Athanasius, what, what, not King, what St. Athanasius says is, he says, his argument is essentially in this quote that, that this prophecy was not fulfilled. So he says, what king was ever reigned who took trophies from his enemies before he had strength to call father and mother? Was not David 30 years old when he came to the throne? Did not Joash enter his reign at the age of seven? Both of them fully able to call father and mother. So he's saying there's no king in which we see that, that there, was, there was a king or a, a babe that was a, before able to be able to call father and mother, that he was able to take this power and the spoils from the eyes of, um, of King Assyria. So essentially he said this has never been essentially fulfilled. But how is this fulfilled in Christ? It's really tough. <laughs> okay. So according to the church fathers, they say that, that, that this is true in view of the spir of spir spiritual realm. So we see that Satan is the king of Assyria. And we see that the power of Damascus is the power of death. And the spoils of Samaria is humanity. Does that make sense? 
So I'll repeat that. So the king of Assyria is the, the, the devil. The power of Damascus is the power, is the power of death. And the spoils of Samaria is humanity. So when Christ came, he was able to overcome by uniting to our humanity the power of, of death, begin the process of, the power of overcoming the power of death, and he was able to bring back humanity. It's a very beautiful, it's a very beautiful prophecy. Um, and so essentially he says this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. Okay, next prophecy. From Isaiah 11. He says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who rises up to rule the nations on him, the nations shall set their hope. So in this prophecy, we see there are three requirements. So the, the person has to rule the nations. So this is a, a king. Has to be of the lineage of Jesse. It's the root of Jesse. And the third part would be the nations would have to put their hope in him. So St. Athanasius said, essentially, again, that this had never been completed or this prophecy had never been completed or fulfilled um, at, any, at any point until Christ. He says, let the Jews tell us if there was ever such a king in Israel upon whom all the nations set their hopes and had peace instead of being an enemy, enmity on every side. So essentially, he says what? He said, there was never a king in, in Israel where all the nations put their hope in the king of Israel, that who was uh, this king being the root of Jesse. And he says, it's actually the opposite. When there was a king in Israel, there was all this opposition and fighting from other nations against Israel. He says, as long as Jerusalem stood there, there was constant war between them. They all fought against Israel. The Assyrians oppressed uh, Israel. Did not David fight against Moab? Did not Amalek uh, make war on Moses? So he says, on the contrary, when you look at the history of Israel, there was always war and fighting between the nations. And there was never a king in which all the nations put their hope on this one king. But we do see that, that in Christ, people from all nations across, country, across countries, across geography, from, all, from many ages, put their hope in this one king. And he said, this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. who made peace. Okay. So the third prophecy, it's a little bit more complicated, but hopefully we can get through it. So essentially he says, okay, if you look at the two prophecies that we just looked at, so before the babe shall be old enough to call father and mother, he shall take the power of Damascus, and there shall be a root of Jesse, um, and who rises up to rule the nations on him shall set their hope. So the so state of the nation says, look, you know, some, some Jews may say, well, you know, we agree. Uh, we don't actually disagree that these are about the Messiah. We agree that these are about the Messiah. But then the, the, then the Jews would argue, well, this was just hasn't happened yet. It's just it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean it was Christ, but it just hasn't happened yet. And this is what St. Athanasius says. He says, so it may be that without denying what is written, they, they will maintain that they are still waiting for these things to happen. And the word of God is yet to come. So in response, his refutation was with this passage in Daniel 9. So in Daniel 9, 24, 27, he says, um, 70 weeks are cut short to make a complete end of sin to, and to seal vision and profit and to anoint the Holy One of Holies. And you shall know and understand from the going forth to restore Jerusalem until Christ the Prince. So this is a prophecy that, um, that was fulfilled um, essentially, th when he says 70 weeks, it, 
you can look at the like the calculation of it, but essentially 70 weeks without going too far into it turns out to be 490 years because week turned out to be a unit of seven. So 70 times seven is 490. And it uh, and there are verses in Leviticus that talk about this. But anyway, so this this 490 year period that that Daniel talks about, all of these things should come to fruition or to come to pass. So the complete end of sin, which was which is what we see in Christ, that he he made an end of uh, sin and and the consequence of sin, which is death, and then we see that not only that, but we but he even. Uh, the prophet Daniel indicates that that the holy one of holies will be the one that's anointed. And so he says, so he's making a prophecy that the God will be incarnate um, in this 490 year period that's following what, the, essentially the period that's following what Daniel is writing about. So he, he indicates that the person who's going to be incarnate is God and that's, that there's going to be a complete end to sin. Okay. The last two parts of this prophecy that he that he deals with it says to seal the vision of the prophet so what does that mean so that means that there will be an end of visions and prophets at the end of this period and that that the fourth one is that the that Jerusalem will be restored and so St. Ignatius says look this prophecy is clearly with with the time frame of the 70 weeks this prophecy is clearly about the Messiah, which Christ, who came at the end of this 490 years that he's prophesying about in the future. And he and it actually is it's interesting because he says, well, what happened in the Babylonian captivity? Babylonian captivity, um, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they came into Israel, they ravaged the country, they took the spoils and the best, the most, you know, promising people, and they took them back to their countries, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. What happened? They came back from the captivity. Jerusalem and the temple were restored, which is what we see here. And this, the visions and the prophecies ceased. And so we see that actually fulfilled before or right when Christ was incarnate. So before Christ was incarnate, Jerusalem was restored and the visions and prophecies ceased. And that we see that there, was no, there were no visions or prophecies before Christ, about 430 years before Christ. And so we see that actually happen before Christ actually comes, which is what this prophecy is saying. And what happened after Christ was resurrected and ascended, that we see the temple was completely destroyed, and there's no hope of it being restored. But this prophecy indicates that the temple will be restored before the coming of the Messiah, and that the, at that point, the visions and prophecies will cease, which is what we see. And so he says this is, this is a very strong argument to indicate that this prophecy is about Christ who came um, at this end of the 490-year period that he indicates. And if you want to learn more about this, um, this passage and, and the, 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 value, the, like the, the power of this prophecy, uh, Father Tedros Meleti wrote a book on uh, the book of Daniel, and he has all of these details in even more detail in that book. So Ignatius says, uh, it is in fact a sign, notable proof of the coming of the word that Jerusalem no longer stands. Neither is prophet raised up nor vision revealed among them. And when the truth and shadow come, what further need was there of the shadow? Which makes sense, right? Because we, when, 
When the visions and the prophecies cease, why would that happen? Because everything has been fulfilled and, there's, and the Messiah has come to us and there's no need for any further revelation because we've, revel we've seen the revelation of God himself. That's what St. Ignatius is saying. So, kind of just stepping back and thinking about the nativity season that we're in. Um, just wanted to think about two verses. So we read in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So how many, par how many parents are there in here? Any parents? There are some parents. Gabe, you're a parent. Yeah, okay. So I think we'd all agree, all of us would agree, there's life before, before parenthood and there's life after, right? And they're completely different. The trajectory of your life is completely different. The goal, completely different. Everything's different. How much more should that be true when we think about Christ coming in, in the form of a baby? I mean, we, we don't receive him as, you know, like in Hosanna Sunday, the people received him and they were w waving the palm leaves and putting the palm leaves at his feet. They received him as an earthly king. And a few days later, what happened? They rejected him. They said, crucify him. Because they did not receive him in the way that he was, th in the appropriate way, as, as a heavenly king, not an earthly king. But when we receive Christ in the form of a baby, our life, the trajectory of our life, our purpose, should be radically different. It should, as, you know, when a baby is born into our lives, our trajectory of our life is different, but that should also be true when we really consider that God gave us his only begotten son in the form of a simple baby um, for our salvation. And Christ says, uh, learn from me for I am lowly and humble in heart. Um, there was a sermon by Pope Shenouda many years ago before he, before he departed. And I think it's something that it's just something that resonated with me. He said, he said he attracted us by his meekness. Like for the Feast of, Nati of Nativity, this was, a, this was a sermon he had written for the Feast of Nativity. Christ attracted us by his meekness and his humbleness. And when we see a, a child so defenseless and so defenseless and like so pure and such a wonderful gift, we wonder how can God become man in a such a humble, simple way for us? And, and how is that true even on the altar? When we think about communion, Christ comes to us in a very humble way, the opposite of anything in the world. He, in the world, you always put your best foot forward. You always put on the nicest clothes, the nicest shoes. You always want to put in a nice facade. But that's just the way the world is, you know? And there's always bragging and boasting. But what did, what did God do? He came to us in the most humble way possible. And he's so humble that he even shows himself to us in the form of bread and wine on the altar. Um, so it's just something to think about that we should make sure to take time away from, you know, the busyness and noise of life and consider this wonderful blessing of Christ coming to us for our salvation. Any questions or comments?
Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, oh God, amen. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us, for for dying on the cross for our sins. We are completely blessed with, with everyone you put in our lives, Lord, and we pray that we can we can have you in our hearts every day. We can see you in other people. We can have your virtues, your your patience, your love, your gentleness, your meekness. We pray that we could be a good example and a good mentor towards others. Continue to watch us and bless us, Lord. And we pray that the body and blood that we took today, that we feel it in our heart every day. Amen. Through the intercession, St. Mary, St. Mark, St. George, St. Paul, all the choir of your saints. Here's when we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, glory forevermore.